Welcome to another episode of the Underground Bunker Podcast. This is your proprietor, Tony Ortega. And this week, I am joined by Valerie Ross. Valerie, it's so nice to have you here. Uh, you, you know, uh, one thing I said when we first started publishing your stories is actually you and I go back quite a while. I want to make sure people know you've been helping me out, particularly on the legal side. Uh, you've worked in a law office and you know your way around documents and you really helped me find quite, you know, quite a few things. And that's the nature of the bunker. People don't realize what's going on behind the scenes, but you've been such a help. And I wanted to thank you for that. Thank you. Yeah. I like, I like helping. I don't especially like the accolades, but oh well. And we've talked over the years about your story, but, um, what you know for i hadn't heard this story about your parents which knocked everybody out why now why did you decide to send me that story about thinking about your parents and what they thought of scientology i actually wrote that seven years ago and um it just felt right it was like i miss my mom around my birthday every year and it's my birthday just passed and for some reason, it kind of just, it showed up on some documents I was looking at. And I thought, you know what? It's time. <laughs> it was just one of those things. It was just, yeah. It, I, um, when I first got out, I didn't tell anyone I was out. No one knew. I, the people I worked with, no one knew I had been in Scientology. No one. <laughs> so... I had, I actually had a friend asking me, so how did you adjust to real life? Just, just, you know, after she's been reading my stories just recently. And I said, uh, I just was quiet and pretended a lot <laughs> because I wasn't sure how to be a person because I didn't get to say I've been in Scientology. So I had to just kind of act normal with not out without knowing how normal was <laughs> now did you stay did you uh, communicate with other ex-scientologists at all no really no. no not at all i um be, between 1983 and 2011 i had i i didn't say the word scientology to anyone my husband didn't know i had been in scientology <laughs> Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, it was that it was just one of those things. I just went, OK, uh, this part of my life is over. And I kind of it put it in hiding. And uh, what were some of the tough things about that adjustment? I know everybody has to go through a kind of a decompression. What were some of the toughest things you had to deal with about getting a different life going outside of Scientology? Well, first of all, I had to be careful not to say any of the words, <laughs> and because I said that's all the word done. You know, I mean, the word indicate. That's, that's I was I was talking in, to the friend, and, and it's like the word indicate. It's like in Scientology, you go, does that indicate to you? And they know what that means. And if I were to say that to a log, they would have no clue what I was talking about. So just plain English words. I had to. Remember, I couldn't say them that way. So I had to be really, I, I, I basically didn't talk for the first six months of my job, except for, sure, okay, how do I do that? What do I do? Where's the copier? <laughs> because I was afraid I would say the wrong words the wrong way. Right. Well, in this last piece you wrote for us, we learned that you had this horrendous car accident uh, and could have died. You were in this 70 mile an hour collision uh, and you were told you'd uh, never walk again, but you did. There was something interesting you said about that because right after that is when you got into Scientology and you said that one of the things that kind of motivated you to get into Scientology is you wanted those hours back that you had lost after the accident. Can you help me understand that a little better? Well, between when I saw the truck at the top of the hill 
And when I woke up in the hospital, there's nothing, nothing whatsoever. I don't remember hitting the semi. I don't remember my boss picking me up. I don't remember going into the hospital. I don't remember arguing with my boss about not wanting an ambulance. I had to be told all that stuff. I don't remember the x-rays they took, none of that. I just remember waking up at like 10 o'clock freezing because I was so cold and I was in a hospital room and they had to tell me everything that happened between when I saw the semi as I was coming down the hill and there. So that's all stuff other people has told me has happened in my life. I don't remember. There's nothing there. So And then and then what and you but you wanted to remember it is what you're saying, right? Right. I wanted to know what happened. I I didn't want other people's stories telling me what happened. I wanted to know. I wanted to to have known what that experience really was, you know? And it's and, yeah. And did they tell you they could do that at Scientology? Of course. <laughs> oh, we'll get that for you. We can handle that. That's easy. Yeah, did they ever? They didn't address it. It never came up. Yeah. <laughs> well, this last piece you wrote for us, I thought was great because you, you helped us understand how it's kind of a gradual thing, step by step, that got you in deep. Uh, do you think they're still capable of that today? No, <laughs> I, I, I listened to, uh, Alex and he talked about how, well, you know, when I was there, we, we haven't watched the video and then we talked to them. I don't know that they even do that anymore. If they do, I, I don't think it's much. I think they're so afraid of people. They've gotten such a fear of the outside world that they can't even do the love bombing that's necessary to get somebody in the door. I think they have to deal with the people that are there and just keep them like, oh, okay, we love you, we love you, stay here, give us your money, and keep them scared more than keep them happy. You know, they just have to keep them scared. Right. That's my opinion. And they did some They did some big love bombing to you, didn't they? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, uh, you know, I'm young, I'm single, whole bunch of really cute guys. Oh, look at you. Oh, oh, are you so smart? You know, look at this personality test. Oh, come on back. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> and then uh, what were some of the early experiences you had that convinced you that this was worth your time? Well, um, you know, <laughs> Pete was talking about the tone scale. And, you know, it's kind of like, well, yeah, this kind of makes sense. You could probably figure some people out. You know, I, I actually, I'll probably write about this later, but the tone scale, I actually wrote poems about the tone scale <laughs> in one of my classes. It was like, well, you have to write something about each level of the tone scale. And I wrote a poem about 1.1. And I thought, well, yeah, you know, I can spot anybody who's trying to do me wrong, <laughs> which is why I got married to who I got married to. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I was convinced that they, they do a really good job, or they did a really good job of convincing you that Hubbard knew it all, it, everything. I mean, and, and you know, and, and I look back at that and I go, wait a minute. I wouldn't ask my eye doctor why my toe hurt. I wouldn't ask my priest what, how to have a baby, <laughs> you know? I would, I, I look at all this stuff and I, I go back over it and everything and it's like, so why did I believe that Hubbard knew everything about everything? And it's, yeah, no, I don't know why. I believe that, I, but they convinced us that if we did what they said, we would be able to handle everything to do with everything in life. And it's just, yeah, it's just gradual. And plus keeping Scientology working off every single course. Right, and so on every course you had to relearn the keep science, keeping Scientology working lesson and, and keep that in your mind. And you got deeper and deeper to the point that 
you became a spy for Scientology, right? I did. <laughs> yes, I did. And I was convinced that it was a good thing to do. It was like, well, yeah, I should be doing this because they're mean, they're horrible. They being anybody but a Scientologist, you know, nobody else can save the world. So we need to get rid of all these bad people who are trying to harm Scientology. <laughs> and that, tell me about, so you, you joined the, or you became a volunteer for the Guardian's office right. and were involved in Snow White. What was your assignment? My assignment was, well, because I knew how to type, I learned how to type when I was a teenager, you know, before high school even. So I was a good typist. So they got me trained on the mag card machine, which got me into the FBI. So um, I was a typist at the FBI and I was a clerk for these guys. And I had my guys, my group of guys. I actually was rereading my letters I wrote to my mom and I talked about my guys. And my guys happened to be some of the people they wanted documents from. So I had access to their filing cabinets and I was able to pick things up out of the filing cabinets, put them back and stuff. And I would actually carry envelopes of stuff from the filing cabinets, put them on my desk. I'd be standing there sorting through stuff I was supposed to get for Scientology while I'm standing there talking to these guys. Blah, 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 blah. blah leave everything on my desk, kind of face down, just kind of scattered around. They'd walk away. I'd go make copies of it, put it back in the file drawers, drop the stuff they wanted in my purse, and sit back down, and nobody knew. And how, and I, how did you know which documents to get? You were probably told exactly what to look for, right? You froze. Uh, and how did you know exactly what documents to get? You were probably told what to look for, right? I was told what to look for, yes. I was told what to look for. By um, who? Um, Diana is who told me. I don't know where she got her information. Who did? Diana. Hubbard? Yeah. My bosses were Mary Sue and Diana. You know, I don't remember seeing Diana's name in the uh, memo, the FBI memo. Wow. That's yeah. wild. I think I've sent you a picture of her. Well, I know I, I know who she is and everything. I just didn't know if she was that she was involved in Snow White. I mean, I know Mary Sue over oversaw it, but yeah. um, so they would tell you what to look for. You and when you say my guys, are you talking about FBI employees that did not know what you were doing, or other Scientology spies in there with you? FBI employees that didn't F know what you were doing. Right. Wow. I'm sitting there talking to FBI employees, joking with them, you know, having a cute time. They're coming up. Can I feel your baby kick? I'm sitting there holding papers, spying on them. They're feeling my baby kick. We're laughing. We're joking. And then Did you back. ever come across a special agent named Christine Hansen? No. Okay. I no. mean, I know the FBI is a huge place. Yeah. <laughs> many, many people. That is amazing. And you never got caught, right? I turned myself in. <laughs> really? 30, yeah, yeah. Actually, I did. I I went to the I went to the FBI headquarters in Salt Lake, thirty years later, and told them what I had done, and they're like, "Ah, okay, hmm, whatever." Yes, that's history. But not at the time. Not at the time. No, not no. when the raid was happening and everything, right? This is years and years and years later. You know? Yeah. No, I didn't. I did turn myself in then. No. Wow. Yeah. Do you remember the raid? Where were you when the raid happened in seven, July 77? I was in the manor. Uh, I'm not in the manor. I was across the street from the manor. I was at Tamarind, 1811 Tamarind Room 327. Um, I was actually, I had a doctor's appointment that morning. It was And so I was across the street because I was supposed to be leaving for my doctor's appointment. And Dave's update, sorry, that's my husband's name now. Mark's brother, Daryl, was living in Big Blue. And he called us and he said, did you see what's going on? They broke in, they woke us up at five o'clock in the morning and they got us out of bed. And I'm like, huh, okay. So I walk out on my balcony 
on Tamarind and I'm looking out at the banner and I'm watching all these people go in and out. I have my little camera taking pictures of all these people going in and out while they're, while it's happening, just standing there on my balcony on it, Tamarind right across the street from the manor. And uh, did you hear later what they were doing there? Well, basically Mark's brother told us that they had raided they, he didn't really say, you know, they're taking all the documents, they're taking all our stuff, you know, um, that's, you know, they were raiding Scientology, they were being mean, <laughs> you know, yeah, I, they were just confiscating all our documents, I, you know. And were you concerned about being prosecuted after the raid happened? What, how, what did you do? Um, I quit my job and had a baby. I'm sorry? <laughs> I, well, I stayed for a couple of months. And then I quit my job and had a baby. Oh, I had um, a baby. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, I, um, I was scared when I went back to work. Yeah, I was really scared and nobody said a word. And so I just went, okay, just treat it like, you know, I just kept working. And then when it was time to have the baby, I just didn't ever go back. So you were at the FBI office in Los Angeles. Right. Okay. Wow. Wow. Right. Yeah. Did, but I mean, when you went back, did you hear everybody talking about the raid and everything? No, no, nobody said a word. Wow. No. Yes. It, it wasn't water cooler talk. <laughs> well, it, and it was also more of a DC operation anyway. Right. I mean, it wasn't, it was, yeah. Wow. Cause they raided DC, big blue and the banner. Those are the three locations uh, and pulled out 100,000 documents. Amazing. Right. Copy paper. Just copy paper. Because <laughs> <laughs> it has stuff on it, I know, because I had got some of it. <laughs> so you never heard about Michael Meisner or Jerry Wolf or any of that stuff? Oh, my gosh. You know, I think that was why I was able to not talk about Scientology after I left it, because... We were so compartmentalized. Right. We, like, um, we didn't know who else was in the geo. We didn't know who was doing what. It, you know, I mean, I talked to Diana. I talked to Mary Sue. I might have seen two or three other people. I had no clue who else was doing what. It was major secret. Well, I tell you what, if Diana Hubbard was telling you which documents to steal from the FBI, uh, that's really interesting because I I have to go back and check my records. You know, I, I looked into it a lot for my book about Paulette Cooper. I never <laughs> remember seeing Diana Hubbard's name in the I, prosecution documents. No, I don't think she ever got prosecuted or even mentioned. She... She was Ron's little girl. I mean, you know, Diana and I used to play piano together. We'd sit down and play duets and stuff together. I mean, she was she was young enough that I think she kind of was under the radar, kind of like me. I mean, we were both young enough that we were just kind of young kids, you know? I mean, we were old enough to, to know what we were doing, but young enough to kind of stay under the radar of the FBI or anybody, which is why we got away with so much. I mean, Diana... Uh, that that picture I sent you of Diana was at the L.A. Convention Center. She was addressing a group of people. And it, we were in the dark and we were sitting with a few people we knew. And I didn't know who else was there. But I took that picture then. Um, but, yeah. Um, I, you, first, you first sent me those pictures years ago. I remember like a, 10 years ago, you sent me that picture of Heber. Because mm -hmm. that, that was a protest over the FBI prosecution, right? Right. Yep. <laughs> so here you were. You had been sent in there. You got a job there. You helped Scientology steal, essentially, documents. And then you went to the protest of Scientologists angry that they were being prosecuted for it. Correct. <laughs> because why not? <laughs> I mean... I can't imagine having that kind of balls these days, honestly. Is <laughs> why did I why did I think that was okay? <laughs> what what how do you answer that question? 
because it was Scientology. I mean, that's the only answer. It was like we were saving the world. Right. So that's such a wonderful photo of you and your child with the sign uh, against the FBI outside the FBI offices in L.A. Uh, amazing. She wasn't raised in Scientology, so she loves it. Because to her, it's like, you know, she also has a Scientology christening certificate. So, and she's like, look, <laughs> these are my Scientology mementos. And she could stop a party with them. And then she's like, nope, not a Scientologist. <laughs> yeah. She never got any of the indoctrination. So she can, you know, these these to her are really precious because they're so, she, she's like, oh, oh, look at this. I have party papers you don't have. <laughs> Well, you were indoctrinated. You were in deep enough. You spied for Scientology in the FBI. Uh, how did you get out of it? Remind me now, what were some of the things that gave you doubts and started to get your path out? Well, you know, I had an abusive husband as well as an abusive organization. So I actually got out of the GO because I got beat so badly that I lost a baby. Um, and his sister watched that happen. And uh, while I was at the hospital, the GO came and the police walked away. And uh, they managed to like ease me out of the organization at that point. I, I was in ethics trouble. He wasn't. But, Punish the victim, right? Punish the victim. So at that point, I was like, uh, so then we went, we went to Seattle for about a month and a half, and then we went to Salt Lake. And we were there, and we were still doing things in Scientology and stuff, but we were, I was kind of like, why am I the one that's always in trouble? Why, you know, why isn't this guy getting in trouble? He's the one doing all this stuff. And then the thing that finally got me out, honestly, I don't know why my mind flipped, and I don't know if I can say this on this podcast. You might have to censor me here, but... We were sitting at home and it was my birthday. I love my birthday. My, you know, my mom dies on my birthday. This happens on my birthday. Everything's so fun on my birthday. But he, I said, he was going to go be with his mistress. And he had told me all about all the fun times he had with her, you know, when they'd had sex and all this kind of stuff. And, and I just looked at him and I said, um, if you have any respect for me at all, you won't go be with her tonight. And he looked at me and he said, fuck you. And I went, And something in my mind just flipped. I mean, it was, I I can't even tell you what, but everything in my mind just did like a complete 180. And I was like, what in the hell am I doing? And it was about Scientology. It was about my marriage. It was about my life. I went, I can't live like this. And I called his girlfriend and I said hey I'm still his wife we're married he's living in my house we're not separated um he's on his way over there but I just want you to know he can stay there because I don't want him uh and she of course didn't want him after that and so he came back to the house and I heard him pull up and I called the cops because I knew I was going to get beat and the cops came and while he was beating me and they arrested him and that was the last time I had to deal with him. And that was when I went, okay, the end. And I broke it off. The end. So the relationship so, with him and your relationship with Scientology, both at the same time? Wow. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's always difficult for anybody leaving Scientology, but I can't imagine having to, to deal with both of those things at the same time. <sighs> Well, um, and my mom was dying. My mom died right around then, and then my dad was dying, and I had cancer. But <clears throat> yeah, wow. but I have a I have a nice. I don't know if you can see it on the screen, but uh, no, it doesn't show up. But there's a scar that goes from here to there. That was his goodbye present for me. Oh God. Yeah. So yeah, it was, 
And the, the worst part is, and, and I think anyone who's left Scientology probably thinks this, I wondered if I should go back to Scientology and I wondered if I should go back to him a lot. I felt guilty because my kids should have their daddy and I never thought I would get married to get divorced. Never. I always thought I would be married for life. So, yeah. So how did how did you cope? I mean, you were on your own. You had how old was your your daughter at that point? My daughter was six and my son was three. Wow. Yeah. And your parents were dying. So how, how did you, Valerie, how did you get through that period? What did you do? I was really lucky because the attorney that that did my divorce pro bono said, you want to come work for me? And I'm like, I don't have any legal experience. And he said, well, you will. And I went and worked for him. And it was at the largest law firm, what was then the largest law firm in the Western U.S. So he did my divorce pro bono and I got legal experience and I became a paralegal. And yeah. So he actually put me back on my feet. I mean, you know, I mean, I got to the, when Mark, I, I was working outside the home before then, but not a lot, you know, kind of like jobs here and there. And Mark was supposed to be paying the bills and he uh, was not paying the bills. And I found out when they were going to shut off the power and the water and stuff after he left. And uh, I, I went to the state and asked for help. And they said I had to go on welfare. And I'm like, no, I can't do that. And so I went to my boss and he actually paid my water and the electric bill for me. And I, you know, I took it out my paycheck. I mean, I paid it back, but I mean, he actually did that for me. So he got me through that part. But honestly, I think like I woke up in the morning and I go, well, I don't really have the time to cry. <laughs> I just need to put one foot in front of the other. And yeah. And I think if I had thought about Scientology or if I thought about him, I couldn't have done it. And then you created a life so different, you never even mentioned the word Scientology around the people at the law firm or anywhere else, right? Correct. Wow. Yeah. And then when my dad died, I ended up getting enough money to put a down payment on a house. And yeah. Oops, she wow. froze up again. And then uh, tell me about uh, reaching out to me and helping me with my with my stuff. That was great. What, you know, how did you uh, remind me of how, how we started working together? Well, uh, I, I started writing about my story on e ESMB, and then uh, then it somebody at uh, at what was the other place? Um, oh come on. Uh, OCMB or um, um, oh, okay. WWP I, or. Okay, I started writing on an OCMB, and that's where I started writing about it. And then the other one, a ESMB. Okay. A they started reading it and then they started saying that I was lying. Really? I mean, I, there's a thread on there that says that I'm a big fat liar and that, that I wasn't raped and that nothing like that happened and all that kind of stuff. So I just deleted my whole story. And at that point you said something about why didn't you tell me that? And I'm like, yeah, cause no, I'm not doing it. But uh, the reason I actually wrote anything then was because in 2011, a girl named Kendra, who was actually out now, I actually, she, she lives in Wyoming, <laughs> interestingly enough, but she, um, I, I found her, I Facebook stopped her before I left Facebook, but she, I found her on LinkedIn as well. So she's actually, she got out about the time she called me in 2011. Um, she, it's the first time I'd heard from Scientology, which is how I had to tell my husband, oh yeah, well, the reason people from Scientology are calling me is because I was in there, you know, and then I had to tell them the whole story. But um, the way I got them to stop is I started, you know, I, I didn't know about you. I didn't know about Mike. I didn't know about Marty, nothing. So I started reading everything I could about Scientology. And 
Um, I kept getting calls and kept getting calls, even though I said, don't call me. And so finally, I talked to Larry Jacobs, who was mentioned in Flow for Good. And I told him his story. <laughs> and he said, uh, okay, we're going to blacklist you. <laughs> because I told him, I said, here's the deal, Larry. You and one person call me again. I will donate $50 to either Mike Rinder or Tony Ortega every time anyone from Scientology calls me. <laughs> and I wish they'd kept calling you. That's why you sent me the money. <laughs> Just kidding. So well, you, I don't remember exactly when we first started talking, but I just remember that you were so helpful because you had that legal experience. And so can I reveal, for example, that uh, I was able to do the Wyoming story thanks to you because you dug up so many great documents for me. The, uh, the Church of Spiritual Technology, Scientology's most secretive organization, has these underground vaults in California and New Mexico. And for years, they were trying to build a new one in Wyoming, and it had gone belly up, and I wanted to know what happened. And you helped me find all these interesting documents to show they had spent $20 million on that hole in the ground that they abandoned. So <laughs> thank you, because I don't think I could have done that story without your help. Yeah, that's, yeah we didn't want them here. <laughs> We made sure they didn't stay around. You should have seen the, the uh, Sweetwater County commissioners meetings when they were trying to get something through, even when they tried to get windmills on their side. And we like windmills, you know, we have them all over, but no, not there. <laughs> wow. And they, I don't, I did talk to a guy that had worked for them and he claimed they're always looking for new sites. And he says they will find some eventually. But if they have, I haven't heard about it. As far as I know, they just have the four vaults and the fifth that they were planning in Wyoming never happened. And I don't know about any other new ones. Do you? I don't know about any other ones, no. Yeah. No. Yeah. I, I, don't th I think they think Wyoming is kind of not nice. <laughs> and that's fine. <laughs> right. So... Uh, then tell me about going through your your papers with your parents uh, and that really killer note from your mom. Tell me about that story. Well, it was actually her journal. And 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 it was just, you know, she had died. My, my dad had died. And we were just cleaning out their house because it was in Blue Water, New Mexico. I mean, the population is less than 200 right now. So it's like none of us wanted to live there. So we just were cleaning out their house and um, I'm just flipping through this journal and it said Val and I'm like, oh, you know, and then it's just talking about stuff I had said that just, you know, whoa, whoa, you know, trying to mislead her so she didn't know what I was doing. And then she said, I just wish she wouldn't lie so much. That was pretty quiet. What you're saying is that she said that you wish, I wish Val wouldn't lie to us so much about Scientology. Uh, just not even about Scientology. I just wish she wouldn't lie so much. Wow. Yeah. I think that really meant a lot for a lot of readers who have had to deal with being in Scientology and talking to family members and that kind of thing. Uh, I think that really resonated with a lot of people. Uh, it's, I, that's when it really hit home to me that they knew I was lying. I, I really believed they didn't have a clue. Wow. And it's like, you know, I mean, I, I was pretty tough when my mom died. I was pretty tough. I was like, you know, I didn't cry and that kind of stuff, but. I had to be the tough one because my little sister was falling apart and my big sister wouldn't make it for a couple of days. And my mom was in the hospital on all these tubes and stuff. So I had to be the tough one. And, and then when my dad died, my brother and I sat together and sobbed, but, <laughs> but then we had to be tough again, you know, and, and that is what broke me. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's not anymore. Wow. And uh, how's your how's your relationship with your siblings now? And do they ask you about Scientology? No, they really don't. <laughs> they um, we talked about it a little bit, but I mean, it's so far in the past. I, it, we all have different lives than that now. And um, my relationship with them is well. My oldest sister has lived in Mexico in in Colonia de Blonde since 1970. So, yeah, so it's, and then my, I have a sister that lives in Arizona and one that lives in Idaho and one that lives in Utah. So we, we're, we don't really get sit around a table very much. <laughs> we do Zoom occasionally and talk, but uh, it's more about old family memories and, you know, and then I, I do a lot of historical research. I, I get plat maps for a Blue Water Village where we lived and stuff like that. We talk about that kind of stuff. We don't talk about life. <laughs> well, did did you hear from them about your stories that were published, or from or other people? What have you heard since you? Because I got to tell you, they really hit big in the in the bunker. I'm hearing from so many people who love the way you wrote those pieces and want more. So tell me if what you've heard. I haven't heard from my siblings on it. Um, well, my big sister said. I didn't know it was that bad. You were brave. That was one response. That was the only response from my siblings. Um, my grandson's wife is like, can I, can I share this? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's why I shared it with you. I mean, no, don't hide it. This is, if I'm telling this, I'd rather you shared it with everybody, but I mean, uh, okay. The girl that does my eyelashes knows now. <laughs> And uh, uh, it's, uh, I mean, everybody knows it's, it's, I have all my friends. I, I mean, we go in, we have, it's people talk, my friends and I talk about it now, which is, we never have. I mean, it's, it's like, where's, and uh, uh, the girl that does my eyelashes, you know, I have an hour and a half where I'm just lying there. So we have a lot of time to talk. And she, she asks really pertinent questions. She's 23. And so she's like, well, how did this happen? And what, how did you feel? And why did you do that? And, you know, and she's actually, she says, this, this explains so much more than anybody's ever said, because nobody says stay away because it's not easy to get back out, <laughs> you know? So I, I'm, Kind of surprised because all I'm doing is saying how it happened. I I I was didn't expect it to hit that hard, honestly. Well, I mean, we have talked to a lot of people over the years about how they got into Scientology, uh, and so you're, some of the things you're saying are similar, but I think uh, you tell it in a very compelling and fresh way that people are really connecting with. Uh, I think people were really. Uh, hammered by that thing that your mother said because you're right you know we all think that we're getting away with things or people listen or know what we're saying i don't know i just thought I, that was something i think everyone could relate to and i just i just think that you did a very good job helping people understand the gradual way this thing takes over your life yeah I, I guess that must be it because it it's it is so gradual. It's you don't I get you don't realize it's taken over until it's a little too late. Wow. I liked also that you talked about how one of the things that got people that got you was the was the sense of that you were part of something. Help me understand that. You know, I don't think Scientology does that as much these days. They they give you trophies for giving a lot of money. But I back then, well, it was also the 70s and everybody was out to save the world and stuff. And I, you know, I had my PhD in marine biology and I was saving whales anyway. So so here I am saving the world with these people. I am saving, you know, saving was a big deal about the 70s. So you're saving things. You get to save the world. 
And so in Scientology, we're sitting here trying to save the world by doing things, you know, and we believed for some odd reason that this, well, first of all, we believed that Hubbard had an education. And so because he, he had an education, he knew what he was talking about. So we bought into the fact that he had an education. So he was going to help us save the world. And as a group, we could save the world, which is what kept us all together. And then, yeah, once I started supervising the briefing course, it became pretty real that, uh, that we were not saving the world. We were, uh, yeah, this is a group that doesn't know what they're doing, blind leading the blind, because I didn't finish my class four internship. I, I didn't even, I barely started my class four internship when I got into Sea Org. And I was the lead briefing course supervisor. I was the one training the, the people through the briefing course. So how does that work? Well, and that's a that was a much bigger deal. I want to make sure people understood what you were saying. It's a little quiet, but the St. Hill Special Briefing Course was this major milestone for a Scientologist to go clear, right? I mean, this was the big, big thing that Hubbard had come up with while he was at St. Hill. Uh, it was kind of this crowning achievement uh, before the OTs. Uh, they don't even give it today. I, it's one of the amazing <laughs> things that David Miscavige has somehow gotten away with. But, um, I mean, I don't know. I look at the I look at the materials, and I'm kind of dumbfounded. I'm not sure how that's supposed to lead to, you know, the this great lofty evolution of man. But at the time, what did that feel like? Those upper level courses? It was scary, and it was heady. <laughs> both at the same time first of all you know i got all this training i got that i got the staff statuses and the febc and the oec so i got all this huge staff training in really really short really really short amount of time three and a half months slammed through it and, and, that, was, I, and that was to become an auditor or an administrator administrator this is this is before i started the briefing course this is before i started supervising the briefing course okay they gave me all sorts of admin training to start uh, supervising the briefing course. One of the things they didn't teach me is like how to thread the tape recorders or how to splice the tapes or, you know, stuff you should know when you're dealing with these students that are on the briefing course. Of course, I knew how to splice a tape because we did it all the time. But so I knew this stuff. But I would sit there and a student would come up and they'd pick up this policy letter and they'd have this dense impenetrable language and they'd like and I was supposed to say what word don't you understand what does source say what part of this document do you not get you know or send them the word clearing I couldn't do that I refused to do that I would sit down with them and I would I, I, I could read pretty fast because I had done a whole lot of studying in my life. So I would read the document really quick. And then I'd say, well, let's, let's talk this through. Let's see if we can figure this out rather than force them to go sit with the word clearer who right. would take them on a chain of words and spend an hour and a half. So I actually was kind of excited because I was getting a whole lot of training, <laughs> a whole lot of briefing course training. And we had I had to listen to some of the tapes because you couldn't understand what Ron was saying. So they go, what what is this? And I'd have to put the headphones on and uh, oh, he said, blah, blah. Now you listen to it, make sure that's what he says, you know. So and then I had to make people demo and all that kind of stuff. Was, uh, <laughs> but, you know, I, I just couldn't be a robot supervisor. So it was actually really kind of heady and it was really cool because I know it doesn't happen now, but back then we got to be their friend as well. And uh, on the Friday before Libs Day, almost every time we got Libs, which was almost every week, we went out to coffee and they paid for it because, you know, <laughs> we didn't have money, but it was kind of awesome. We got to actually be with them and, and actually just sit around and hang with them. And it was, you know, so you got to know these people. So, yeah. But 
yeah, as far as <laughs> it, it, it just kind of was weird too, because it was like, I, I kept reading these things going, how is this teaching them to save the world? You know, push, pull, blah, blah, uh, <laughs> well yeah that's 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 what always comes up for me too is you know how is pushing somebody around a room or talking to an ashtray supposed to yeah you like you said save the world or give you superpowers and i don't know at the time i guess you're just so busy trying to get it done you don't think about what the point is right 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 have you ever read ot1 yeah oh my gosh I was so pissed when I did OT1. I I had thought that the OT1, I, I knew this guy that was OT1 and I thought he was like, he walked on water. And then I did OT1 and it was like, this is a locational. Yeah. This is stupid. Yeah. <laughs> and, go outside, and go outside and look at a tree, right? That yeah. kind of stuff, right? Yes, yes. And it's the same way with the, that the courses I would look at, we'd read this stuff and I go, okay. And then I would say to myself, I must have missed a gradient. I must, this must be something I hadn't studied before because this doesn't make any damn sense to me. <laughs> well, and did you get to OT2? Five. Okay. Because OT2 is the one, I know OT3 gets all the attention because of Xenu, but OT2 is actually in some ways much more bizarre because that's <laughs> when you're starting to handle the GPMs that are trillions of years old and things, right? Yes. I mean, it's all space opera. It's all billions and trillions of years ago. It's nutty. It is. It is. And I, and well, okay. Uh, you want to hear, uh, I, I guess I may as well just tell it now rather than write it down. Here's my, here's how I am clear. I was sitting there in an auditing session and I said, I can't look at a picture. I've never seen the pictures. And they said, oh, well, we need to go to the examiner. And I went, uh, okay. And we went to the examiner and they said, your needle's floating. I went, okay. And, I, and then they said, well, you just attested to clear. <laughs> I'm like, uh, Okay, <laughs> so apparently I was a natural clear. That's how I went clear. Wow. And yeah. uh, where, where did you, um, you also did OT4. OT4 is mind blowing because that's when you're trying to uh, rehab your BTs and, and dry them yeah. out from their drug use, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Because yeah, <laughs> those poor druggy OT BTs. I mean, <laughs> the, all of those OT levels are just, by the time I hit five, it was just like when I finished it, I was I'm not even going on because all of these are stupid. Yeah. These are just stupid. I don't even care. I mean, Mary Sue really, really encouraged people to get auditing. She really did. She she was the reason I got that far. And but it was just like, eh, no. And what no. were you paying for a OT five in those years? I didn't pay. I was oh, in the was Sea Org. Yeah, I was uh, in GO. If you were, I'm sorry. I was in the GO then. I, yeah, but I, how would you have time to do the OT levels if you were in a GO? Weren't you working all day and night? Oh, no. Oh, no, actually, because of what my job, I actually had time to go on course or get audited every single night. Yeah, I was busy stealing documents during the day and getting courses and auditing every night. <laughs> you were a yeah. spy stealing documents on your job at the FBI during the day. And traveling through time billions of years into the past at night at the org. Yep. Right across the street from where I lived. <laughs> Walk across the street to the manor and go travel through time. Wow. That's just uh, amazing. But look, yeah. you but you were victimized and you were treated terribly. You were re-victimized by Scientology. I'm just glad you managed to get out of there and, and, and done so well. And I, again, I'm so grateful to help you've been giving me. And now you're writing these great stories. Don't worry about you go ahead and write about anything because I think people really like the way you explain things. And, and uh, it's just, I, I love somebody who's been in, who can really 
explain it in a way that all the rest of us can understand. Somebody like Sands Hall, for example, she's great at that. Uh, Kate Bornstein is great at that. And you're another person that can write it down and make people see what it was really like and make us understand the mental, the whole mental picture, as Scientologists would say. So uh, I really, I really appreciate that. Thanks. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's been it's been kind of a trip. I uh, the more I write, the more I remember little things. You know, it's like, oh, okay, well, that yeah, that happened, and then some things I've kind of shied away from writing because it's like, do I really want to even talk about that? Because it was so long ago and I don't know that I even care anymore, <laughs> but I think maybe I do because it, you need to hear the dirty side too. But well, yeah. I think you're doing a great job. I really appreciate it. And uh, I can't wait for the next, next piece. Well, actually I already have your next piece, but we're not yep. going to let people know about it yet. <laughs> That's a I'm going to have to wait a few days, but uh, it's a great one. So Val Ross, thank you so much for coming on and doing the podcast with me. Sure. Thanks, Tony. Okay. I'll talk to you later. Okay. Bye-bye. Again, again.